Hello and welcome. Throughout our series of Living in Love and Faith podcasts, we've been addressing a range of issues arising from what it means to live and maintain a Christian identity as believers and citizens in a society which often diverges from the church's perceived and also stated teaching on morality and personal behavior. In this episode, we'll be discussing how our personal experiences and conscience govern our approach to sexuality and identity. Experiences shape us. Consider the award-winning film director, Mike Nichols, the man behind films like The Graduate and Postcards from the Edge. He arrived in America as a Jewish refugee along with his three-year-old brother. Mike Nichols knew two English sentences. I do not speak English and please do not kiss me. He said years later, I was a zero. In every way that mattered, I was powerless. Be they compartmentalized or daily walking beside us, our experience shapes us in primary ways. My name is Stuart Henderson. I'm a poet, broadcaster, and songwriter. Our strapline, seeking answers, how do we hear God through experience and conscience? The Reverend Dr. Sean Doherty is the principal of Trinity Theological College, Bristol. Before that, he spent some eight years at St. Melitus College in London as a tutor in ethics and then as the director of studies. Having trained at Wycliffe Hall, Oxford, Sean was ordained to the priesthood in 2008. He served his first curacy in Cricklewood, northwest London, before moving with his wife Gabby and family to be part of a church plant on a housing estate in inner city West London, living opposite Grenfell Tower. The Reverend Dr Jessica Martin is a canon residentiary of Ely Cathedral where her duties include outreach and education. Before ordination, she was a fellow and lecturer in English literature at Trinity College, Cambridge. Her commanding writings on John Milton's epic poem, Paradise Lost, were serialised in The Guardian. Jessica's new book, Holiness and Desire, What Makes Us Who We Are, was described as illuminating, challenging and liberating by best-selling author Sarah Perry. The Reverend Duncan Dormer has been the CEO of the 300-year-old Anglican Mission Agency United Society Partners in the Gospel since 2018. Before that, he enjoyed a two-decade association with St John's College, Cambridge, serving as Dean of Chapel for 15 years. With degrees in Human Sciences, Medical Demography and Theology from Magdalen College, Oxford, Duncan is the co-editor of and contributor to the 2007 book of essays, An Acceptable Sacrifice, Homosexuality and the Church. To begin, some cryptic wisdom from psychoanalyst Carl Jung, who wrote, I am not what happened to me, I am what I choose to become, for the privilege of a lifetime is to become who you truly are. Sean Doherty Young also said, thinking is difficult, that's why most people judge. 
which presents us with various pertinent dilemmas. As a Christian ethicist yourself, and looking at human identity, sexuality, relationships, and marriage, is believing in the validity of a deeply felt experience sufficient justification to attempt to alter or modify the whole church's teaching on the subject? I think there's lots of uh, things that need to be said to, to that um, suitably provocatively phrased question. So thank you for that, Stuart. Who we are is is always something that we are kind of in touch with, but it's always something that we're only partially in touch with. I would want to start by by saying. Um, so you know, it's great that you quoted the um, Jung uh, because he's kind of he's he's acknowledging that we are to an extent a mystery to ourselves. So just as Christians believe that God has to reveal God's self to us. Uh, we actually also believe, I, I, I would have thought, that God has to reveal ourselves to us as well. And that the process of self-discovery for Christians is a process of, um, a, a, of, a, of part of our journey with God. So we can't just say, well, this is who I am and you've all got to deal with it and accept it and kind of arrange yourselves a- accordingly. We, we've got to sort of, to an extent, hold on to our identities with some kind of lightness and openness to deeper understanding of ourselves and more accurate understanding of ourselves. At the same time, I think it is really important to say... Um, this is this is who I am. This is how I experience myself to be, and to to look to the church and to look to God for um, acceptance of ourselves. Duncan Dormer, experience is a complicated category, and and how do you really hear somebody? How do you really hear somebody? I think you really hear somebody in in particular sorts of settings face-to-face and over time. So, for example, if it, within a relationship there are some challenges, uh, should we say, that need to be talked through, going for a walk and walking side by side is a better way often to resolve the issues than sitting down hmm. face-to-face in a slightly more kind of confrontational context. So whilst on the sense, on one face of it, you're creating a little bit more distance... The reality is that you can you can get deeper and 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 be more reconciled than you might be by by sitting opposite each other. So at the end of the day, words and narratives are always going to stumble and trip. We're, we're never going to grasp the totality of something. Um, it's a little bit like the way that poetry, you know, is better or operates better than prose. I mean, poetry can can tell a profound truth, which if you spelt it out in analytical prose, uh, wouldn't come across in quite the same sort of way. Us not knowing ourselves, as it were, is an important part of the equation. And, and if we are really struggling to know ourselves, or indeed people that we have known for 30 years very well, then there's always going to be a massive challenge in in trying to understand somebody else particularly through a vignette through through a narrative through through a statement jessica martin experience is never unshaped as soon as something happens to us we start to shape it and what we tend to shape it into is a story and stories have particular 
arcs, you know, they really do have beginnings and middles and ends. They've got a kind of shape to them, which we make rather in, in order to sort of make sense, memorable sense of the experience. And quite often the way that we indicate what's the important part of a story um, is by bringing to bear in it the things that we find meaningful about our lives or ways in which values give meaning to what has happened to us. As well as LLF, I've been on 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 another uh, body that thought about this 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 subject, and I was struck both on LLF and on that other body about how um, how very difficult it was to find that beyond experience voice that would speak generally for everybody. And in fact, that it was a, an extremely artificial voice. I think some of the huge difficulties that the drafters have had has been about how you can find a voice that's both human and knows its limitations, but isn't anyone's voice in particular. And that's really, really difficult. And um, when I came to write about sexuality, you know, with, with my own name on it in my own book, um, one of the things I felt I really needed to do is to, 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 to take that voice off and say, actually, this is the voice of someone who got pregnant at 18, uh, was an unmarried mother, who has made other serious mistakes in their, their life. Not because I had a sudden urge to write a memoir, but because I knew that it shaped what I saw. It shaped how I was going to... Um, argue a case if I was going to argue a case it shaped what I would notice in the world because we only notice finite numbers of things and it would in a way be a, a, I hoped an aid to people who read what I wrote because they'd be able to say oh I understand why she's noticing that thing but has missed this one because it's clear that there's a huge variety of really nuanced and thought through uh, response to the kinds of challenges that public teaching poses. They don't fit naturally into categories at all. And that the, 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 the variousness of people's emotional experience has had as various a set of, of, of outcomes in how they've decided it was right to live. Sean, public teaching coming out of private contemplation, you very transparently if I may refer to your same-sex uh, attraction before, was there a moment when you thought, I can actually use this as part of my experience to help others? I think the way it worked for me was um, almost the other way around, that I was simply, was me, and um, uh, kind of, open about my sexuality or pretty open about my my sexuality I didn't really come out to many people um it was more that people would sometimes ask me oh are you gay or whatever they would ask me and I would just answer truthfully and say yes I am I suppose when I was at university I was the LGBT rep in my college for a while so I suppose then people didn't need to ask me because it was obvious right. um and and so then so I was just that I, I was just living my life in a way um, rather than in any conscious or deliberate way, just thinking oh, I must share my story with with people. 
But then as I did that, it became clear that that was helpful to people. So then people found, oh, there is some someone actually who is willing to be publicly kind of open about their sexuality. It's not therefore a shameful or an embarrassing fact about themselves, something they need to conceal or keep hidden. This is part of who I am and, and, that, and I'm okay with that. Even that in itself is, I think for some people, a positive thing. Next to make its entrance is the ancient character of conscience. The word has over a page of definitions and references in the Oxford English Dictionary. I won't list them all, but rather plump for the precy. Conscience being inward knowledge, consciousness of right and wrong. Jessica Martin, in the section in the LLF book headed Identity and Conviction, the proposition offered is that identity presents itself as a conviction or dictate of conscience. How do we know if conscience may be influencing our full portrait of who we are in Christ? I was thinking about this word conscience because some of its definitions um, seem to be suggesting that it is the inward dictate of you know truth that comes to the individual soul that God will kind of whisper what is right and I do think that is true I'm not arguing with that but I also think it's actually very hard to distinguish the voice of conscience from more human frameworks of what's normative you know in my life I've always been very anxious to get things right. I was was very dutiful at school. I've always been very keen to be thought good. And I've always been most troubled by situations in which I had to decide to oppose a a public perception of what might be a good piece of action, uh, because I had an inward conviction that I should be doing something else. I also suspect that some of the things that we would find normative, we could also characterise culturally as being rather independent-minded, I suppose. There are bigger things than who you choose to be in the Christian life. And it may be that you find what Christ wants of you in a discovery that you make about who you are. But I think at the point you are saying, I don't care what you say Lord, I actually, I, I, I'm, I'm much more interested in my heroic identity as a, as a single mother, let's say, because that's one I can claim. Then you've got a problem. Duncan Dormer. I think I'm very struck by the degree to which we are shaped by a certain sort of individualism. As someone has recently pointed out, we're a weird people in Europe. And I think the last point that Jessica was making feels very uncomfortable for people. People want to land somewhere and know that this is where the church is going. Everybody at the beginning, you know, polarised sides wants to win and wants their side to cash out. And this process has not allowed that in the sense that I think it's speaking into the individualism and identity politics of Western Christians. And by identity politics, I see identity politics both liberal and conservative, 
Uh, and it's sort of, I, I, I see it disrupting that a bit and, and getting us to pay more attention to others. I think the vulnerability of others is something which is, which is really key to our own Christian discipleship and journey. And the privilege of seeing that, I think, is, is, is part of what deepens your own journey of becoming, to pick back the, the Jungian reference earlier. So I'm deeply appreciative of the fact that this is actually quite open and therefore disconcerting. I think there's a cultural aspect here, which, which is sort of almost front and centre for me because I'm, I'm in conversation with Asian and African Christians for whom it's not all about me. <laughs> you know, I'm in community. I'm, a, I'm an uncle. I'm a brother. I'm a, a father. I'm a son. I'm in this clan. I'm, I'm part of this group. It's a much more communitarian self-understanding of their own Christian faith. Sean Doherty. I think this community focus that Duncan's advocating, which I very much agree with, kind of challenges the um, Western understanding of the conscience that Jessica alluded to in terms of conscience being the voice of, of God. Now, particularly for kind of Protestants and evangelicals like me, fans of uh, Martin Luther, um, some of the blame for this can clearly be laid at his door, or at least kind of popular perception of his door, um, which says, um, you know, here I stand, I can do no other. My soul or my conscience is captive to the, to the word of God. There is something, you know, potentially right in that, What's, what is language of the conscience trying to get at? I think the, the, the truthful thing that it's really trying to get at is saying you have to make up your own mind sometimes and you are accountable for the decisions that you make. So there's a, there's a healthy sense of personal responsibility. And I think the other thing that it does that's really healthy is that it recognises there are limits on the authority of the church and on the authority of government and on the authority of the family or any institution or um, kind of body when it comes to telling, you know, other people how to live their lives. You know, people must make up their own minds and make their own choices and they are accountable to God for those choices and we mustn't be trying to control one another's choices. Clearly, though, a big danger or downside of that is if it just makes it a complete free-for-all of every person for themselves, following their inner dictates and screw everyone else, basically. So I think, you know, there's the, the, the right thing which I'm advocating. And then, but we also really need to hear the corrective that Duncan's kind of advocating. Another strand within Christian thinking about conscience has been to speak of the formation of the conscience, to speak of how our own moral judgment needs to be shaped by the community, by worship, by prayer, by all of these other different um, factors. When introducing Duncan Dormer at the start of this podcast, I mentioned the book An Acceptable Sacrifice, Homosexuality and the Church, which he co-edited with Canon Jeremy Morris, former Dean of Trinity Hall, Cambridge. Duncan Dormer, that book published in 2007 with a foreword from Desmond Tutu, no less, was an empathetic discourse that sought to be attentive to the authority of scripture 
alert to the unity of the church and sensitive to the integrity and experience of practicing gay Christians. Now, since that book was published, opinions have been amplified. Where do you think the church is now over this? <laughs> There's some ironies here. So um, I think all the authors in that book are straight. Uh, and and we, we had a bit of a joke about whether we should call it straight talking because it felt like that particular moment was quite a difficult moment for lesbian and gay members of, and, and bisexual members of the Church of England. It felt like everything was quite pushed down and it was quite difficult to put your head above the parapet. And I think the advent of same-sex marriage uh, legislation, which completely threw the Church of England. It, it, it just really didn't see that coming from a, a Tory government at the time that it did. They didn't understand the way in which society and culture had shifted. They, they really didn't get it. So, I mean, I'm, as someone who's engaged in mission, particularly within, and, and thinking about contextual mission, within the context of the Church of England and, and the UK, I think the gulf between where the church is and where society is, is, is massive. And I think the thing that concerns me within that more than anything else is the moral critique of the church by secular society, who I think think this is a, a strange position for the church to hold, not to have, have moved towards a much fuller acceptance of gay people. On the other hand, I'm profoundly aware from my day job that the Church of England's position is well understood by more conservative cultures. And if we shifted, if we shifted it, it would have some repercussions. Questions about what we call, say, homosexuality are thought about very, very differently in different parts of the world. So particularly... Uh, America and, and, and the UK are, are tied up very much with individualism, especially, and identity, you know, our identity in an individual kind of way. That's just not how most people think. So I think there's a lot of misreading across culture. If you take much of Africa, the question may be entirely reframed in terms of kinship. How are you related to different people if you were in a same-sex formal relationship? And, and, and procreation, having children, the, the kind of procreative um, uh, impulse in, in, in Africa is much, is much stronger. Having children is really fundamental to, to your identity, who you are. Sean Doherty. I find that so helpful, Duncan, in terms of thinking about our, you know, we've, we've talked about kind of being accountable to one another and being accountable to the, uh, to the experience of LGBT people, which I think we, is really uh, crucial what it made me think of was in the new testament when there's appeal to conscience so um uh you know sort of famous kind of examples being food sacrificed to idols um there is kind of an appeal to conscience but but there uh, st paul is kind of saying yes you've got your conscience you've worked out what you think but then he actually asks people ironically not to follow their consciences so in the in the west we're kind of used to following our conscience consciences come what may but in the new testament that's not always a foregone conclusion um because sometimes we refrain from following our consciences 
precisely because we are kind of being gracious or kind or accountable to one another within the uh, within the Christian community or we're not wanting to kind of give cause for offence or stumbling to to other Christians uh, who may see things uh, dif- differently. As we've been hearing, conscience and conviction are major characters in the small dramas of our own lives. Ah, the spoke Greek chorus, commenting on, sometimes quite volubly, issues which directly affect us. Just one final question for you all. How does scripture indicate how to differentiate between the objective and the subjective conscience when it comes to sexuality and identity. The easy ones last. Jessica Martin. I've been thinking an awful lot about how the prophets operate. For a prophet like, let's say, Jeremiah, it's really painful to hear the voice of God. It's really costly because he's constantly having to tell people things that go athwart the ordinary transmission of power. Prophets, in theory, are able to speak for the needs of the king and against the needs or desires of the king. Uh, But, of course, it's much more comfortable for them when they speak for it. And the kings tend to be much more pleased with them when they say, yes, O king, you will win your battle. So there seem to be times which happen quite often in the Old Testament where a single voice says, I'm not going to tell you what you want to hear because what I have to tell you instead is that you need to turn around and do something completely different. You need to think about the ways in which you've been stealing stuff from the less powerful, for example. And very often those voices are ignored or punished for for speaking in conscience, for speaking the words of the Lord. But then there are also those moments which happen, uh, particularly in the Acts of the Apostles, where you see that there is, within the Christian community, a profound difference of opinion about what the Holy Spirit is saying. And it's clear, although it's not talked about always very directly, that there are profound splits in this early community and that those splits could end up splitting them right open. But because everyone involved even whether they agree about um the, the about the gospel being for the gentiles or not um do agree that the holy spirit will speak through what people discern um and that they will collectively accept what the holy spirit has to say and they kind of recognize it when they see it because of that actually people's personal convictions are overturned at the moment where the Holy Spirit comes upon the Gentiles at Caesarea they say well there is no reason not to baptize these people we've got to do it so scripture has a model for communities listening together to what the Holy Spirit has to say and what the Holy Spirit has to say isn't about whether one side won or the other side lost uh, but is about um what turns out to be right for the body of Christ to embrace and understand. Duncan, scriptural indications? I think one of the things that I am struck by again and again and again 
is the radical difference in human personality. Uh, and as a kind of manager, from a very practical point of view, you, you know, you've kind of got to have a, a feel for just how different people are and to work out how to manage them more effectively. You know, the scriptures interrogate us within the context of, say, Lecto Divina uh, or, or in prayer and in study. Now, I used to kind of think that was, the, that was a secondary or that was the sort of second most important thing that scripture does. But I kind of now flipped that. I think, no, 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 that's, that's the thing that scripture does fundamentally. Uh, if one goes into the reading scripture in that way, you're the one that's under examination, not scripture. <laughs> you know, you, you are in court. You're the one who's up against it. Particularly within our own culture, we're, we're very quick to go to the analysis, to the logic, to the objectivity of things. So, I mean, I get very concerned if you take something like sexuality or indeed any subject where people say, here are the texts we need to look at. Well, no, I mean, you're not going to understand the ethics of sexuality by picking out seven key texts. It doesn't work like that. You understand the ethics of sexuality because you understand scripture and you understand it in a much more holistic kind of way. You understand the emphasis of, you know, God's grace. You understand what kenosis means. Uh, you, you know, it, it, that's what allows you to approach the question about sexuality. Sean, just, just finally, um, Duncan's thought about scripture interrogating us, that, that leads me, uh, perhaps in my own sweet muddled way, to think, well, at the end of an interrogation is a revelation and that the person under, interrogate, under interrogation may come to see that perhaps the way that they've been living is open to question, open to correction. Different people, different Christians and groups of Christians do read the whole and then the particular in, in relation to the whole and reach different views, you know, not just about the significance of individual texts, but about the, the meaning of the whole kind of biblical story when it comes to sexuality. And I think this is why it's difficult when it comes to thinking about conscience, because not every matter is a matter of con where Christians can disagree in good conscience with one another. So we would we could have a, dif a discussion about a different ethical issue, um, uh, such as sexual abuse or, or, or something like that, where I would hope that all Christians or almost every single Christian would agree, oh, yeah, that's wrong. And there's, you can't really legitimately disagree about that. You know, there is kind of only one legitimate Christian point of view about about that matter. The difficult question then is, how do we know which are the ones, the topics where it's OK for Christians to have a really, really strong difference of opinion about this? And then others where kind of, no, no, there's a kind of mainstream point of view here and you've kind of got to get in line. Or you may want to disagree with it, but you are at that point disagreeing with the mind of the church, the consensus fide, you know, uh, not just kind of, not just, it's not just kind of a legitimate disagreement where we can agree to disagree about it. So I think, Stuart, your your point about, you know, there's a revelation at the end of it, I think is 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 right. There can be revelation through these processes of arguing, not just about what's the right point of view, but also what's the what are the things that we can 
agree about legitimately. Um, but I, I hope it's not revelation is not just at the end of the process. I think it, revelation is all the way through. We start in a place of, you know, we are only in this conversation in the first place because God has in God's grace revealed uh, God's self to us in Jesus. And then, you know, all the way along, I think, is a process of God being kind and, and, and revealing ourselves and, and, and revealing more. I think one of the things that's been hopeful for me about the LLF process has been a kind of a willingness to acknowledge that the depth of those disagreements and kind of face up to it um, with with realism and to because we can't if we are going to work out what what next we can't do that without kind of that realism about how profound those different points of view are precisely about that big picture reading of the whole of scripture so it's not just oh well your point of view on these these few little texts happens to be different to mine where we could then say well we can kind of agree to disagree about that maybe but about my point of view about like what is the good news or my point of view about kind of how do we read scripture in the first place is really different to yours and those are very fundamental matters rather than peripheral ones. Duncan Dormer. I, I don't know if this helps or not but I'll chip it in. Uh, in terms of agreeing to disagree uh, one parallel might be war in the sense that Christians you know many Christians are pacifists many are just war theorists and and we live with that tension it seems to me very well that the, the the views held on either side are extremely passionate they're very well established but but it's by no means a consensus at all thank you very much for joining us in this podcast and my thanks to sean doherty jessica martin and duncan dormer and there are more conversations like this available for individual or group study you could even rate or review this podcast now there's an invitation also you can discover more resources at churchofengland.org forward slash llf goodbye and thank you for listening